we're going to go to Genesis chapter 2 here in a moment first. And this is a different, a different sermon. I changed it last night. There we go. I totally changed the sermon last night. Yesterday afternoon, actually, as I was leading a prayer at the uh, Father's Day cookout, which was just a wonderful cookout, by the way. I'm so grateful for all those that took part and all those that cooked and, and worked and served and cleaned up. It was just a wonderful cookout and Blaine gave a wonderful message. As I was leading prayer, I felt like God lay in my heart to just change this message. So it it's hot off the press. I finished at 1 a.m. last night, which is not usual. A lot of pastors, that's normal for, for. It's not usually normal for me. So anyways, the reason I say that is if you follow the inserts in the bulletin, they're not, they're not correct. So you don't want to really follow the insert in your bulletin today. And just so you know, it, the information on the bulletin insert will not be on the test either. You'll be okay there. So in case you were worried. And so anyways, you know, happy Father's Day once again. And as we celebrate fathers, I want to talk about family. And I want to talk about how God established the family. God established the family. That was the first institution which God established. God set up the family. The family was God's idea and is God's idea, not man's idea. And that's what I want to focus on. So on December 6, 1907, a massive explosion decimated a coal mine in Monagon, West Virginia. 362 miners were killed, making this the worst mining disaster in U.S. history. The tragedy devastated the small town and led eventually to the establishment of the U.S. Bureau of Mines. The Monagon mine disaster also marked another beginning. Several months after the explosion, a local church held a special service in honor of 362 miners most of whom had left behind wives and children. So wives and children were left behind without fathers, without a head of household. And so they had a special service at a local church in honor of them. And this is the first event on record in the United States set aside specifically to honor dads. Two years later, a woman from Spokane who along with her five siblings was raised by her widowed father began a public campaign to establish a National Father's Day. A day for mothers was already in the works and according to historical accounts, was a much easier sell to the public. It was much easier to sell a day to honor mothers than a day to honor fathers. By 1916, President Woodrow Wilson had officially recognized Father's Day. Though it would not be recognized as a national holiday until 1972. A little over 100 years after the mining disaster, right? We're about 115 years after the mining disaster that birthed Father's Day. The United States is now suffering a crisis of fatherlessness. One in four American kids are like so many in that West Virginia town growing up without their father at home. One in four, 25%. And that amounts to 18.5 million kids. If statistics hold, this means that 18.5 million children are three times more likely to engage in criminal activity than those who have dads at home. Those 18.5 million kids are more likely to engage in sexual activity earlier more likely to have emotional and behavioral problems, more likely to struggle academically, twice as likely to commit suicide. 
and much more likely to commit violence. The vast majority of mass shooters in the past 20 years were young men who were in some way estranged from their fathers. In fact, what I've heard is in all but, I believe, one case of the mass shootings of the past 20 years, they came from homes without fathers. A lot of the crime that happens comes from homes without fathers. Almost any social good that can be named is dependent on dads who commit to their families and is, and is at risk when they don't. This does not mean that every child who grows up without a dad in the home will not succeed. Praise God for single mothers, grandparents, and others who step in when, to help when the father is not in the home. Praise God for other paternal influences that step in to help when the father is not in the home, whether this happens because the father abandons their family, which is tragic, or because for some other reason, you know, loss of life or other thing, the father is taken out of the picture. Showing up, sticking around, and discipling kids as only a father can is a powerful witness to the beautiful design and the steadfast love of our own Heavenly Father. Every kid needs and deserves one. A little bit, I'm gonna reference before the end of the message that for those from broken families, those who have a father who has not really been a father, God is our heavenly father and the church is our family. I'm gonna come back to that. But that does not negate that God set up the family. God set up the family. God set up the family as the first institution. Fathers and mothers and the family are part of God's natural law. That's what it's called, natural law. Natural law is the ethical or moral structure that God has revealed to humans in creation, both within their consciences and in the providential unfolding of history and which is discerned through reason and experience. Through reason and experience, we know family. We know mothers and fathers, children, a natural order of creation. We know that. God has placed that on our hearts, and that's what would be called natural law. The concept of natural law has existed since the earliest days of the church, when Paul wrote of those who by nature do what the law requires— in Romans 2.14, he may have been thinking in terms of natural law. Just by nature, they're doing what the law requires. And what I'm arguing, we see God reveal in the Bible the family. And we're going to chase that all the way back to Genesis. We also see God had laid it on our hearts. God had laid it on our hearts. So as we celebrate Father's Day, I want to focus on God's order. God established the family. My theme today is that God established a family as the first institution. God established a family as the first institution. In the application, we must honor the family. We must respect the family. We must praise and worship and glorify and thank God for the family. God set up the family. The, the family was God's idea, not man's idea. Since it was God's idea, really, man, humanity doesn't have a right to tamper with it. Except, obviously, in the extreme cases of abuse and things like that. That's a different story. God established a family. I want to start with Genesis 2, 18 through 24. In Genesis 2, 18, the Lord says that it is not good for man to be alone. So the Lord created Eve in Genesis 2, 14. 
And I'm going to read Genesis 2, 21 through 24. I'm not starting at verse 18. I'm going to start at verse 21 and go through verse 24. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken for the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. In that passage right there, God is establishing the first institution, which is the family. We see it a little bit at the end of Genesis chapter 1 as well. But Genesis chapter 2 goes in much more detail about uh, the creating of man and God putting man in in the garden. And then the creating of of the woman. And and God actually gives family a gift to humanity. I'm going to come back to that in the end. God gives family a gift to humanity. I mean, he says right there that it's not good that man is alone. And then God officiated the wedding of Adam and Eve. Tim Keller shares this. This is a wedding. You know how the father brings a bride down the aisle to the groom. In this case, the father is God. God is doing the honors. He's bringing the wife to the husband. When Adam sees his wife, he literally explodes into art. This is the first piece of art in the history of the world, according to the Bible. This is Hebrew poetry using parallelism and assonance and wordplay and a chiastic structure. You can look those up later if interested. It's a song. He's exploding into poetry and song. He's excited that God is giving man, woman. God is establishing the family. God is officiating the first marriage. God is functioning as the, as the, as the father, the bride. Right here. It's a wedding. It's the first institution. God is gifting Humanity with family. And then in Genesis 3, what happens? The devil tempts Eve, and Adam does not step up and defend his wife. Sin then enters the world. In one way, we could say this was the first failure of a husband. I mean, it's the first sin, but as husband, as Tony Evans shares, uh, Adam should have stepped up and said, Excuse me, Mr. Snake. You're messing with my wife. And he should have defended her. He should have stepped up. And he didn't. It says that Eve then gave some of the fruit to the woman who was, to Eve, who was, I mean, to the man who was with her. So we know that Adam was with her. Sin enters the world. So we had the family. The family was set up. God established the family. And then sin enters the world. And now we have family in a fallen world. And then in Genesis 4, the two... Adam and Eve become four, and then, and then many more. Cain and Abel, who might have been twins, are followed by others. This is the family. This is the first institution given to society. So we celebrate Father's Day, and we celebrate Mother's Day about five or so weeks ago. We, all, we were celebrating family, and we have to remember God established the family. It was God's idea. There's a principle, you've heard it referenced by me, called subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. This means the closest people to a situation are most equipped to handle the situation. Your family is most equipped to handle the needs of your family, the cares of your family. Poland is most equipped to handle the needs of Poland. Boardman, Boardman, and so on and so forth. Ohio is most equipped to handle the needs of Ohio. The closest uh, group to a situation are most equipped 
to handle the needs of that group. So the family was God's idea. It's the closest. It's the closest unit to the needs of the children, the grandchildren, and so on. It's the family. It's, it's God's institution. It's God's idea. And family is critical for the health of a society. God established a family. God established and placed it on our hearts as part of natural law, the idea of mom and dad and family order. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. God established a family. And we could walk all through Genesis and all through the Bible and see many times where the family kind of is, is dysfunctional, right? And we see the effects on society in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. In Genesis, we see it where Abraham lies and says that Sarah is his sister. That happens twice. We see the manipulations with Jacob and, and Esau and Rebekah and Isaac. We see all that happen. We see Genesis chapter 39 and issues with Judah, the son of Jacob. We see many other cases. And then we get to Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 and God is putting in stone literally carving in stone these commandments honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord is giving you and Paul later says in the New Testament Ephesians 6 2 that this is the only commandment with a promise the point is that no civilization can live well in the land without respect for parents grandparents and the elderly You see that in our own society, don't we? And, and, and I want to interject right here. No civilization can live long in the land without respect for family and God's natural law. A few weeks ago, it was the anniversary of Nero, who was the emperor of Rome in the late 50s and early 60s A.D., and he, was, he persecuted the church in just amazing, extreme ways. In the anniversary of, I believe, his birth. Do you know that Nero got married dressed as a bride, even though he was a man? No civilization can exist fruitfully in a good way, rejecting God's natural law of family. Rome, I believe, fell from within. God established a family. It was God's idea. It was not man's idea. And fathers, obviously, have a significant role as provider. That should have been R-O-L-E. It was 1 a.m., so sorry about that. As provider and spiritual leader in the family. Fathers have a significant role as provider and spiritual leader in the family. I already shared at the beginning of this message all the cataclysmic consequences when the father is absent. So sticking with the Old Testament, I already talked about Genesis and, and fathers not really stepping up. But we also see the consequences when dads don't lead in the Old Testament. In 2 Samuel 13, David's son Amnon raped his sister Tamar. And David did not do anything about it. He was grieved, but he didn't do anything about it. Maybe he was burdened with all the cares of managing and leading a, a kingdom, but he didn't do anything about it. And this led to David's son Absalom taking matters into his own hands. And then eventually, David almost lost the kingdom. And David actually did lose the kingdom for a while. You can read the account. Uh, 2 Samuel chapters 13 through 17, it's, it's 
like a tragic family movie mixed with a war movie at the same time. David should have been the dad. David should have stepped up. David should have done something about it. But maybe David was an absent father even beginning, even from when they were children. I mean, he had multiple wives, multiple children by multiple wives, and we see the problem with that. What about the New Testament? In the New Testament, we have household codes. We find these in Ephesians 5, uh, Colossians 3. We also see them in 1 Peter chapter 3. These are household codes. And in the Pauline household codes, Paul reflects the household codes of the Greco-Roman world. But he's a little subversive. In the Greco-Roman world, for the household codes, the man was completely and totally the head of the house. And his role was absolute. The male head of household is referred to as the paterfamilis. The paterfamilias maintained power over property and family members, even power over life and death. And that all goes all the way back to Plato, the philosopher. But get this, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, prior to the household codes that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote in Ephesians, before Paul writes about family order, he writes this in Ephesians 5, 21. He writes, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's a little submissive, uh, subversive. In a day and age where... A man had power of life and death of his family, of his children, an absolute role. Paul begins submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then he writes, wives, to your husbands as to the Lord. If you look at your Bible, it probably says wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Well, the submit in verse 22 is implied, so our translations keep writing submit again and again and again. But in the Greek, submission, submit is only in verse 21. Now, I believe that submit is implied, and it, and, and, and it is right to be there. It makes it more clear. But the point is that, that, that there is an order in the family, but we have an idea of mutual submission. I think Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is still considering the husband, the leader of the family, the spiritual leader, in the head. But we must be servant leaders. We must be humble leaders. We must be gentle leaders. We aren't to be like the world. As husbands, as fathers, we aren't to be like the world, domineering leaders. Who you make us mad, the discipline is absolute. We're not to be like the world, but we are to be leaders. As we continue in Ephesians 5 in that household code, Paul gives an example of what Jesus did. Husbands are to be like Jesus. Husbands are to love our wives as Jesus did the church. What did Jesus do? He came and he served us. Jesus came and he took care of our sin problem, didn't he? Ephesians 5, 23 through 25. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. The church is the body of Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. Now as the church submits to Christ, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writing, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do? He gave himself up for the church. This means when there's a need and a conflict, as much as possible, while being the leader, husbands are to be self-sacrificing. 
yeah, I'll take care of the kids. I'm not gonna play golf this morning. You need me at home. I'll help with this and that in the home. I'll help with the children, with the grandchildren. Not being absent fathers. And certainly spiritual leaders. Look at this. Jesus is the head of the church and he died for the church. The church is the bride of Christ and there's family language once again. And Jesus, what did he do? He took care of our spiritual need. Husbands, fathers must be spiritual leaders of the family. We, do you get this? With that principle of subsidiarity, like I said, the, the closest to a situation or most, uh, have the most potential to take care of that situation. Husbands are the pastor of the family. Fathers are the pastor of the family. The church comes alongside these families to help and support them as they raise the family. But the church is not responsible primarily for the spiritual care of the children. It's the husband. It's a dad. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel. The Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign of your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. All through the Old Testament, we see the idea of teaching our children and grandchildren about the Lord. We see it in the Psalms. We see it in Exodus. We see it many, many times where it says, when your children ask, you shall tell them, the Lord brought you out of Egypt with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And then right there in Deuteronomy, it's saying, teach them. Teach them diligently. When you sit in your house, you teach. When you're walking by the way, you're teaching. When you lie down, you're talking about the good news of God. When you rise, you're talking about God. They're going to be in your heart. They're going to be on your doors. Husbands have such a role. So do mothers. But husbands, I think God has given that role. Notice when Paul was subversive, he still did not change the order. The Roman, Greco-Roman order of family. Interestingly, Rome saw the family and the family order as important to its success as a nation. And Paul was subversive, leading with submission. But he still did keep the order as Father, husbands, children. I mean, father and husbands and then wives and children. And you know, all through the Old Testament, when God is talking about teaching your children things, it's not talking about teaching children about God in a generic sense, but about the Lord. About the Lord, the God of Israel. What does it mean to watch over our children spiritually? It means to introduce them to Jesus. Show them that you love Jesus. Not just, we're going to church again. We've got to read the Bible for today. No, show them that you love Jesus. You care about Jesus. You treasure your relationship with Jesus. You treasure. He is your Lord and Savior. Show them that you treasure him. Bring them to church. Read the Bible with them. Pray with them. Pray for them. Again, discipleship begins at the home. And you are the pastor of your family. I love this. Seeing his father's bedside after watching him take his last breath, John, Sp John Piper spoke these words. So John Piper is next to his father. His father had just died. And get what he said. He said, I look you in the face and I promise you, with all my heart, never will I forsake your gospel. Oh, how you believed in hell and heaven and Christ and in the cross and blood and righteousness and faith and salvation in the Holy Spirit and the life of holiness and love. 
I rededicate myself, Daddy, to serve your great and glorious Lord Jesus with all my heart and with all my strength. You have not lived in vain. Your life goes on in thousands. I am glad to be one. So right after his father, who was an evangelist, died, Piper's rededicating himself to continue the gospel which his father loved. And do we want our children to be able to say that about us? Do we want our grandchildren to be able to say that about us? Then we meet, we talk about the funeral arrangements, or you meet with whatever pastor at that point, or people to lead the service, and, they, and, and you want to say, my dad loved Jesus. And I want to love Jesus like my dad loved Jesus. And I want others to love Jesus like my dad loved Jesus. Family was God's idea, God's institution. It's a gift from God. It's God's order. God established the family. God established a family with husbands and wives, children and grandchildren. The world may be confused, but we don't need to be confused. The world is confused, isn't it? Gavin Orland writes, sorry for that little hyperlink that stayed in there, it's blue. Um, he writes, the sense of chaos and disintegration introduced by, introduced by atheism is powerfully conveyed in Frederick Nietzsche's famous parable of the madman. This character, generally regarded as representing Nietzsche, runs to the marketplace and cries out, Whither is God? I will tell you, we have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers, but how did we do this? How could we drink up the sea? Who gave us a sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Whither is it moving now? Whither are we moving? Away from all suns. Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, uh, uh, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not feel the breadth of empty space? Has it not become colder? Is not night continually closing in on us? The point is, in this parable of the madman, which is where we get the idea of Nietzsche claiming God is dead. The point is, once they take away God, there's no hope. There's no backward. There's no sideward. There's no forward. It's empty and cold. The world may be confused about the family, but we do not need to be confused about the family. The family was God's institution, God's order, God's idea, God's gift to us. And even if the world is confused, we don't need to be confused. In his famous essay on existentialism, for example, Jean-Paul Sartre rejected the efforts of earlier French atheists to retain objective morality apart from God. He was stating that the existentialist finds it extremely embarrassing that God does not exist. For there disappears with God all possibility of finding values in an intelligible heaven. In other words, once a society rejects God, they reject all morality, all ethics, all up, all down. And the world can be confused, but we don't need to be. We don't need to be. God gave us family. We don't need to be confused. We must be model examples. I remember driving one day and listening to a message by Chip Ingram on Moody Radio and hearing him say, a family, a Christian home is a great witness. A dad involved with his children, a grandparent involved and mother, of course, too. Uh, grandparents involved with their grandchildren. That's a great witness. One day when his kids were young, his kids are grown and he's probably got grandchildren now. He went out to play ball with his kids. 
And the neighbor came over and the neighbor was separating from her husband. The neighbor said to him, hey, I want you to know I'm leaving now. And I'm done with men. She said, but if I ever, if I ever got married again, I'd want him to be like you, a dad involved, playing with the children, involved with his kids. God created family. God gave his family as a gift. Do you realize that? The family is a gift from God. God created Eve for Adam because because there was a need. It was not right that man should be alone, Genesis 2.18. In other words, though we say God should be enough, the norm is that we need other people. Now, Now, we need other people because God set it up that way, Right? This is natural law. This is God's natural order. When he has set what God set this up with creation, God gave family as a gift. The family is God's first institution. Dads are the pastor of the family. By the way, and this is very important. Sometimes families are divided. Sometimes dads are absent. Sometimes they're there, but not really there. This happens too often, and it is tragic. We must all remember, as the skit showed quite well, that God is our Heavenly Father. We must all remember that the church is our family. Family is a central metaphor for understanding our relationship to God. Israel is portrayed as the Lord's daughter or wife. Jesus' followers are children of God, his brothers and sisters. In many of the letters of the apostles, followers of Jesus are referred to as brothers and sisters. The covenant with God is understood as a great extended family. So the church, the bride of Christ, is a family. And sometimes families are even divided by the gospel. Jesus said that would happen, didn't he? Still, this is part of the sinful world. God's order for the family was established in the Garden of Eden. Praise God for the family. Praise God for fathers, mothers, children, and grandchildren. That is our application. Give God the praise for his institution, the family. And I'm serious about that. As you exit this place, as you spend time with the Lord, remember the family was God's idea, not man's. The family was set up by God, instituted by God, and God gives us an ethic for the family all throughout the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and praise God for that. That family is extended to the church, the bride of Christ. And in praising God for the family, for your family, be a family man. Be involved with your family. Honor your family. Pray with your family. Spend time in God's word with your family. If your children are grown out of the house, do that with your spouse. If, if, if maybe your spouse has passed on, do that with your grandchildren. I always show the example of a guy I heard share at a men's breakfast at my last church who started a Bible study with his grandchildren. He said, children love donuts. So he called them over, said, I'll get donuts. And every Saturday morning for, from when they were like five years old to, I don't know, 20 or something, he did Bible study with his grandchildren. Grandchildren, grandparents have an amazing role in the family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you right now for the family. 
I thank you, Lord God, for the family. We give you praise for the family. That is your institution, your idea. And I pray, Lord God, that as a church, we honor the family. We respect the family. We're thankful for the family. And we are people of family. Our biological family as much as we can. Our extended family as much as we can. And certainly the church family as well. Lord God, I pray, Lord God, that you would bless and guide and support the church family as we leave this place. Bless and guide and support our church family as we leave this place. Guide us as Christians in a very, very confused world because once God is out, there is no up or down. There's no grounding for ethics. There's no grounding for hope. It it breathes despair. There's a lot of despair once God's out of the picture. But Lord Jesus, we know you. We know you. We are in relationship with you. For those that have received you as Lord and Savior. And Lord God, for any gathered here today who have not received you as Lord and Savior, I pray that today would be the day. May today be the day to commit to you as Lord and Savior, to confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe in you as the one and only Savior, to trust in you and commit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As always,